So Pastor was talking about um, expository preaching, which is uh, what we prefer on, on Sunday mornings, which is uh, verse by verse, as he said, where you let the, the text, as much as you can, speak for itself. Uh, Sunday nights is oftentimes more topical preaching, which is okay, but what the difference is, is that uh, you run into the Uh, Instead of doing exegesis, eisegesis, where you say, this is what I want the text to say, rather than what the text is actually trying to say. So topical preaching, though, is good at times to say, okay, here's my topic. What does the whole of Scripture say about this topic, to approach it maybe a little more systematically? Uh, So as we get into this tonight, and uh, we're starting this series on ethics uh, we'll be looking at the whole of the scripture. What does it say about ethics? And this, can someone give me a new chair? This thing's broken. Uh, or maybe I'll just stand. Uh, looking at ethics from the, the whole of the Bible, what does it say about it? So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 1 in a moment, so you can make your way there. Be a little bit before we get there, but we'll uh, end up there eventually. But uh, Exodus chapter 1 is where we'll be in just a moment. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on tonight. God, we thank you for this opportunity. I was mentioning to someone just moments ago, I feel like this topic is beyond me, and they affirmed, yes, it is. And Lord, I, I know that uh, your word is answers questions about life. It's sufficient and we can trust it, and it speaks to the areas uh, that we need to know as humans. You haven't left us in the dark, but you've revealed yourself to us. So God, would you reveal yourself to us in your word tonight, in the power of your Holy Spirit, and help us to discern how we can better honor you in the way that we live, and what we say, and what we do, because you care about both of those. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Thank you. So I was at uh, Caribou Coffee down on Ingersoll in Des Moines the other day, and uh, it was a busy day, so I sat down with some other men who were meeting there, and we were sharing a table. And if you ever shared a table with somebody at a coffee shop, you just kind of naturally get pulled into the conversation, offering heat things here and there as you introduce yourself to one another, and then you start working on your own things. But you can't help overhear the conversation that's happening because it's a foot away from you. And these men were discussing their lives, what was going on, how things were going with their business, and what was going on in work, talking about different practices that they were a part of. And one of them, distinctly, I'll never forget it. They were talking about something at work. I don't even know what it pertained to as far as business goes. But one of them leaned back and he said, man, don't talk to me about ethics. Ethics are for Sunday morning." I remember thinking that, sinking in, hearing that over and over in my mind. Ethics are for Sunday morning. Well, what was he saying? Essentially, it's a nice idea. It makes you feel good when you're in church, but real life, you can't live that way. Not if you want to be successful, not if you want to get ahead or enjoy your life. It isn't so much that you, it's that you achieve your goals, not so much how you achieve them. In a sense, the ends justify the means. As long as your goals are good, it doesn't really matter how you get there. Now, that's easy to scoff at and say, wow, I can't believe someone would live that way. I can't believe someone would 
think that. That's what the world says. But too often, I think that we feel that way too. Although we would never say it out loud. When push comes to shove, we think, oh, it's not a huge deal if I just do a little unethical thing here and there. And so I approach this subject on ethics with great awe as I think about my own life and many unethical things that I've done that I'm, that I'm, that I'm ashamed of. And I don't want to just be a Sunday morning Christian. So I want us to think about tonight, not about the other guy who you know has done something unethical and how wrong he is, but point back to yourself and think, what areas of my life am I not living this way? The Bible doesn't want us to just be Sunday morning Christians, but it wants us to live for Christ wherever and whatever we are doing. That's why Paul says in the book of Colossians, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Now, according to this verse, God not only cares what we do, but how we do it, what your heart condition is like while you work. If the means to the end are sinful, then God is not pleased because really we're working for him and not for man. So we want to have goals, but we want to have goals that please God, and he cares about how we achieve those goals. Now, there's seemingly small ethical things that maybe we've been guilty of that seem like good things, so we want to watch the big game None of you obviously want to watch the big game. That's why you're here tonight. But say you want to watch the big game, but you don't, and you know that at halftime you're going to be able to witness to your friend. But here's the problem you don't have the channel that the game is on. So you borrow a buddy's subscription that you aren't subscribed to, that you're not paying for. And you think, well, I'm going to witness to my friend at halftime. It's okay if I do this. It doesn't really matter how I do it. It's that I'm using it for good. Maybe a little bit bigger is you've made a poor decision and you think for the sake of your spouse that it's better not to tell them. Or covering for a friend at work so that he can keep his job or to not get in trouble. He's like, just do this one time for me, please. Just do this one time. I won't ask anything again. Or cutting corners at work, saving money for the company in unethical ways. Now, in Scripture, people are faced with controversial decisions all the time. We think about Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Are they just going to obey the authorities of the land, or instead are they going to not bow down and instead beg, obey God? Joshua chapter 2 with Rahab the prostitute lying to save the lies of the spies that she had hidden in her home. Acts chapter 4, they're told, the, the apostles that is, to stop preaching in the name of Christ, but yet they go on and do so anyway. And then Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, that you have there in front of you, I'm going to read this one. We'll use this as a little case study a little bit later on tonight, but this is what it says in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, you shall live. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male child live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said, why have you done this? You've let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So these Hebrew midwives, so it would seem here, lie to save the lives of those who they uh, are trying to protect, the nation of Israel. Now, we're faced with these kind of decisions a lot throughout our given lifetimes and even in our given days. Uh, but before I go any further, I just want to say tonight, I, let's not have any smoking in the room. And if you disagree with me, uh, please don't stand up and swear at me, okay? So there are certain things that are ingrained ethics that you know you're not supposed to do, right? How come none of us have to say that at the beginning of each talk? Because you know that's not something that you do inside of a building, and it's not appropriate behavior. But there are certain things, though, that are harder ethical situations. Not everything in life is black and white. So how do we determine what is right? Well, I was able to take a class with Russell Moore on ethics, who is the uh, head of the um, Ethics and Liberties Commissions of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I want to show you just a little bit from him in this class that I took on this next section of how the world, how they pursue a system of ethics. And this is how the world pursues ethics to find out what is the right thing to do when faced with an ethical situation. And the first one is hedonism. Hedonism, that is, pleasure is the ultimate aim. So this is the premise of hedonism. Determining what is right and wrong is the, dependent upon the pleasure that it brings to me. As long as what I'm doing is not hurting anyone else and it makes me happy, then I'm okay. When left with the situation of we're in a lifeboat and someone has to go over, who do we throw over? The guy that works for the IRS, right? I asked my wife, she said, Roseanne Barr. I was like, really? Like, that just came to your mind? Okay. <laughs> but the nutshell here is if I'm not hurting others and I'm happy, then that is the right way to live. That is the standard for me. So the standard is me, how I feel, and what I feel about others who live around me. Well, Francis Schaeffer wisely says, if we don't have a way to judge society by a way of absolutes, the society becomes the absolute. Hedonism, secondly, the world, and there's several of these, but I'm just going to give you two tonight, is Stoicism. And this is not like the traditional philosophy of Stoicism, what you think of as far as those who aren't affected by anything when things happen in their lives. But this is more of knowing that the universe follows a specific design and direction. And you see that certain things work out in life and certain things don't work out so well. For example, a guy who's robbing a bank that is not going to end well for him. Even in that moment, if he's successful, it's not going to end the way that he desires it to. So looking at the world and saying, the universe operates in a certain way, and I am going to go with the grain of the universe, and that is going to be what's going to work out for me. So looking at an impersonal universe, but the problem is the universe has no capacity to reveal itself. So the standard, again, for logic is what I feel is best. 
So Christian ethics differ in that the standard is not an impersonal universe, but a personal God who has revealed himself to us in his word. So what's the standard that Christians live by? Well, according to Wayne Grudem, whose book I'm going to recommend to you tonight, if you know anything about Grudem, he doesn't do anything small, all right? This is a a large book, but it goes through a lot of different ethical issues and standards for ethics. It's not all that expensive. Pick it up if you're interested in it. But he says the standard for our Christian ethics is God's word and his moral character, Malachi 3, verse 6 says, I am the Lord, for I, the Lord, do not change. So God's standard and moral character is unchanging. So therefore, no matter what happens in this life, no matter how culture progresses, no matter how much time passes, God's character always remains the same because he is unchanging. So therefore, the truths of his word will always be the same in any generation. And that's where our standard is found is in the word of God. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So the Bible gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. 2 Timothy 3.16, a familiar passage with many of you, and verse 17 says, all scripture is breathed out. It finds its source in God. It is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when looking at this, we see the word of God equips us, teaching us for training and righteousness. It equips us to face life. The Bible is sufficient for all areas of life. And what is the Bible's main aim? What is is sufficient for? All things that pertain to life and godliness. Essentially, the Bible is sufficient to make us godly, to live life in wisdom, and to know and to be like Jesus. Association of Biblical Accredited Counselors and their director, Heath Lambert, says, the Bible is sufficient. This is important. Listen to this. The Bible is sufficient, but it's not exhaustive. It doesn't tell us about neutrons, electrons, and all the sciences, Right? So some might object to that and say, okay, therefore the Bible is not sufficient. Well, I want to show you this. This was a uh, gift from my father-in-law many years ago. Uh, he gave me this for Christmas. It is a home repair and improvement book. <laughs> now, this is one of those gifts that you're kind of offended by when you open it. And then you're kind of disappointed because like, that's the only gift you're giving me is a home improvement book. But uh, he knows me and knows that I needed this as a gift. Now, it's a matter of actually reading it. Uh, but it tells me everything. It tells me how to do electrical things, which I've become an expert in after owning this book. It's, uh, become, it tells me how to do uh, plumbing, even um, masonry, walls and ceiling, installing cabinets, window trimming. Everything that I need for home improvement is inside this book. But you know what I got a beef with this, this book? 
So when my wife and I are having an argument, it doesn't tell me anything about that. And that kind of makes me mad. Like, why? This is a home improvement book, but yet there's nothing about how to handle conflict in this book. Now, why is that? Because that's not what it's sufficient for. It tells you how to do everything physically in home improvement, but yet I can't say, but then, this book is a joke because it doesn't tell me how to make an argument okay with my spouse. Now, the Bible is sufficient for what it's written to do. It's not exhaustive, so it's not going to tell you how to fix a tire, but if you want to know how to live life, how to be right with God, the Bible is the book for you, and it's our standard for life and for practice. And often the Bible is black and white, isn't it? Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. And it's very clear as to what God's standards are. But what happens when there's certain situations that aren't included in God's book? Is it not sufficient then? Yes, it is. It goes along with time, even though things that when it was written didn't exist, like social media, contraceptives, surrogates, marijuana, and fantasy football. None of those things existed when the Bible was written. So there's not a chapter in verse on those current issues. But Russell Moore says, Christian ethics is not about giving a list of issues with answers, but being shaped and formed by the whole gospel and by scripture. So it's knowing the word, the whole counsel of God, so that any situation you can take God's unchanging standards and apply them to our present conditions. Thomas Watson says, what God is, he was from all eternity, and what God is, he will be through all eternity. God is unchanging, and he relates and can speak to every single issue. So I want to give us just a little grid here to help us to be able to discern how to live ethically in situations that are not necessarily spilled out in chapter and verse. How do I relate what the scripture says to some of those things that I mentioned earlier that didn't exist during the time that the Bible was written. And the first one, and this is, this is gonna be really uh, extraordinary to do, the Christ grid, okay? Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, or their thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So these verses tell us that Christ answers all the questions of why am I here? What have I been called to do? Everything in the universe finds their goal in Christ. Simply, Christian ethics is Christ-likeness. So every situation we ask ourselves, how can this bring more glory to God in this situation that I'm in? How can this situation that I'm in bring me closer to Jesus Christ? 
And what we've said before from Charlie Dates is that all, not everything that is logical is theological. Not everything that is logical is theological. Jesus' ways are often different than ours. If you think about Jesus, remember him in the boat in the storm? What are all the disciples doing during that time? They're freaking out, right? They're like, Jesus, don't you care that we die? And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He's getting waves splashed in on him, and it doesn't affect him at all. He's just out on a pillow in the front of the boat. When everyone else is freaking out, Jesus is calm. But what's he doing in the temple when everyone else is going about their business and everyone is just doing business as usual? Jesus is really upset, isn't he? He's mad. He gets a whip and he starts turning over the tables. And so here's what you need to ask yourself. When I'm pursuing ethics, are the things that make Jesus calm and not freak out are the things that I tend to freak out about? The situations in life that I tend to get really anxious about and all these other things, is those the things that Jesus got upset about? Or what about the other side of it? The things that I don't seem to get that upset about really are the things that frustrated and made Jesus angry. That might be a sign to you that you are being sucked into the way that the world's ethic thinks. The things that make Jesus have just be even keeled, the things that you get all excited about and the things that make him excited, they don't do anything for you. Furthermore, Russell Moore gives us the kingdom grid. The kingdom grid. Your kingdom come, your will be done, the Lord's Prayer says. So we don't determine what is best based on history but we determine things based on what God said was originally good. Are you able to look at something and determine, seeing how someone is using something and say, originally God designed this a different way? I mean, that's why we don't have pre-vandalized dumpsters, right? Let me check out this one behind me here. I love this one because I was walking around downtown Des Moines and I saw this creative graffiti on the side of it. It says, gosh darn. I thought about this is like some Christian kid that's really mad at his parents, right? And he goes out and wants to do something that's going to make him feel really evil, but he can't bring it to himself to swear. So he writes on the side of that thing, gosh darn, right? Now, everything else on that is added. It's been vandalized. And when we look at things through what's important to God, when we say, God, I want your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, we say, I'm going to look at life and say, God's original design, it wasn't meant to be that way. For example, we were just doing some marriage counseling, premarital counseling a little bit ago, and my wife shared this example, and I was like, oh, no, don't share that one right? We're supposed to be an example of a healthy marriage right now. And she shares about how I was supposed to do a project outside. And it was a tough project. It was actually clearing snow off the trampoline. And I thought, I'll get to it, right? And, and so I'm, the other day, I'm walking through the house, and I see at the corner of my eye, there's his body moving on the trampoline. And I looked out, and it's my wife's body. And She's pushing the snow off of it, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> she did it herself, right? 
Now, I look out at that and think, okay, I'm supposed to be leading my wife, and here I am putting things off, and she's doing them. I look at that and say, originally, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And you look at the world around you, and you see this, the, what God designed for good was sex, and there's a whole billion, trillion dollar industry that's been made out of it with robots and everything else that are coming along the way, and we look at it and say, this is not the way that God intended it for, to it to be, for it to be. Kingdom living will always be counterintuitive. Jesus says when someone hits you on the cheek, turn and give them the other one. When someone takes your stuff, give them more stuff. Do you see, this is in the same way. Our, our, when we want to pursue Christian ethics, it's going to be the opposite of how the world thinks. We also need to know the message of the kingdom when someone tries to use the Bible as an excuse for sin. Has anyone ever seen that before? So just because something is recorded in Scripture doesn't make it originally good. I know a guy who uh, had committed adultery, and he said, well, David did it, and look how God used him justifying his actions. But the problem is David repented of his adultery. Just because it's written in the Bible doesn't make it right. And so it's not about just knowing a chapter and verse, which if the chapter and verse is in there, by all means, use it. But it's about knowing the whole counsel of God and being able to know the scriptures as they are in order to give an answer for what does God called me to do in my present situations. Here's a little video from Russell Moore giving us a little more insight into this. So some uh, helpful insight there. Um, you do well to read anything by him. Uh, but I want to shift gears for just a moment here as we get into our last 10 minutes. And I want us to ask a question that Grudem proposes, and many of us probably think about, is, is there a time that Christians have to choose a lesser sin? For example, if your family is starving, is it okay for you to steal bread? right? That's a common one we use. Or is it okay for you to lie so that a friend doesn't lose a job? Or if you're trying to get a Bible to a closed country that doesn't allow Bibles, is it okay for you to lie? Or is it okay for us to sin for the greater good? Uh, some people call it the no-win scenario, well, let's just see real quick what Captain Kirk thinks about the no-win scenario. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. So there you go. <laughs> but many people do. They believe in the no-win scenario. In fact, there's a guy named Norman Geisler. He says that God does not hold a person culpable for not keeping a moral law if it is for the greater good. Now, that sounds good, right? But it's not actually what the Bible teaches. The Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, tells us, oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. So the Old Testament is very clear that it's not about just keeping some of the commandments, but about keeping all the commandments. And Jesus says of himself in John chapter 8, verse 29, he says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are 
pleasing to him. Now, Geisler goes on to say, actually, Jesus was faced with a lesser sin scenario at his trial when he was standing before the Sanhedrin. He says, would he choose justice for himself and speak out against the accusations that were against him, or would he choose mercy for humanity by remaining silent? So the scenario is, there's false accusations coming against Jesus, and he's going to say, does Jesus defend himself, which is what he's supposed to do according to the law? Leviticus 5, chapter 1, or verse 1 says, if anyone sins and that he hears a public ad- adjuration, to, t- to take a second there, to testify, though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Isn't that interesting? He shall bear the iniquity, which is what Jesus was doing. So there's, he's saying he would have had to violate the law in order to remain silent, but because he loved humanity so much he was willing to be silent. But then you read the book of Matthew and you see this, but Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so, right? So he's defending himself there while not actually defending himself, just saying what they say, but then he takes it further. But from now on, you're going to see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Boom, right? So Jesus actually wasn't faced with this kind of scenario and models for us that we don't have to face this either, even though at times it feels like we do. Like if I don't do this, if, I, if I'm honest in this situation, then bad things are going to happen. Maybe I'll just tell a little lie in order to get me through. Have you been there before? You feel that temptation to do that? This is important. If Jesus would have had to face a lesser sin scenario, he would not be able to be the sacrifice for sins because he would have sinned. It's so important that Jesus models for us that we don't have to be faced with the situation. And if we do face it, we're actually giving into moral relativism whether we realize it or not. We're saying there's not really any absolutes that are defined, but really what I term to be a better good, a better absolute. And let me say this you also rob yourself of the opportunity to have faith in God and see him work. Say, I'm going to take matters in my own hands and do what I think I need to do, even though it might be a little unethical for the greater good. Jesus is saying, you're missing an opportunity for me to work things out in your life if you would just trust me. And in that moment, when it feels like there's nothing else you can do, that you're trapped, you remember what Jesus says in first, or what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptations overtaking you that is not common to man. We all face these situations. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape, an escape hatch, so that you may be able to endure it. So let's put this into practice a little bit. I want you to get with two or three other people around you. I want us to go back to Exodus 1, verses 15 through 19. It'll be on the screen behind me, or you can look in the Bible by yourself. And you determine ethically how you feel about this passage according to the counsel of God and what his word says of these midwives, if they did the right thing or not, what do you think in the sight of God? So go ahead, just about two or three minutes, get with someone near you, read this passage, look up on the screen here, and you determine uh, if you think this was the right thing ethically for them to do. So go ahead. Just 
So was it right? Did they do the right thing? Well, if you come back next week, we're going to give you the answer. (laughs) You can think about it this week. Keep working through it. And next week, we're going to have a pastoral panel, and we're going to give out to some of these guys. I'm going to moderate it. We're going to give a lot of issues that we're facing today that we'll be facing, like marijuana, many other issues, war, all kinds of things, and talk about them using the whole counsel of God and what does the Bible say and what is the correct ethics in approaching these things. So come back next week. It's going to be insightful time, and we'll start with the answer uh, to that question from Exodus chapter 1. Uh, But I want us to leave here knowing ethics is not for Sunday morning only. Ethics is a way of life for believers. Whatever we do, work at it with all our hearts as to working for the Lord. We have to train ourselves to do it, don't we? Have you ever watched a toddler when he's first trying to take his first steps? It's hilarious, isn't it? Every step is thought out. Every step is so slow. But then when a 30-year-old goes walking by, you're not like, whoa, look at you, right? (laughs) It's not even thinking about it anymore. You don't have to tell the body how to walk anymore, right? You figured it out. Well, when you're trying to live in a biblical way, in a biblical ethic, sometimes it does at the beginning. You take It takes time to figure it all out. And you're just kind of walking slowly and you're stumbling along. And you're newer to the faith or maybe you just haven't been in the Bible all that much. It's going to feel like that. But as you discipline yourself, as no discipline seems pleasant at the time but is painful, later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, verse 11. So as you immerse yourself in the word of God and you start to think, it just starts coming out of you naturally because you've been trained by the word of God, you'll find yourself living like Christ. Not perfectly. Some of these ethical situations will still be difficult, but you'll learn how to process these things and give glory to God as you do so. Thanks for coming out tonight. It is 6.10. Uh, you have till 6.15. If you have children that are over in Shine, you can go over and get them in, in just a moment. Let me close this in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. God in heaven, I thank you for your word. It's inspired. It is everything that we need for life and for godliness and we want to line our lives up with it. We want to look at your unchanging character, who you are And apply your unchanging character to our changing world. That's our desire. That's what it means to live biblically. So God, I pray that we would do that. We would be so immersed in your word that we naturally, that your word would flow out of us in the way that we live. And we would continue to grow. And God, there's some here that have, like myself, done unethical things. We all have. May we repent. And if we're in the midst of them, may we make things right like Zacchaeus And may we forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, growing in you, and we can't undo what's been done, but may we we live for you based upon your word. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. You're dismissed.